0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Stripe. Tap to pay on iPhone, and Stripe can help you grow your business's revenue and reach through accepting more in-person, contactless payments right from an iPhone. To learn how, visit Stripe.com slash tap iPhone.
1: Hey, it's Guy here. So have you ever wondered what makes certain ideas, brands, or even behaviors catch fire? Well, today on the show, we're exploring how and why everything from laughter to viruses to viral ideas have the power to spread. This episode is called How Things Spread, and it originally aired in March of 2016. This is the TED Radio Hour. I'm Guy Raz. So, a few weeks ago, we were talking with a research scientist named Sophie Scott.
3: Hi, speaking.
1: Sophie works in London. Are we live or is this recorded? And we were recording, of course. Fantastic. Just so I'd check. It would be crazy if it was live. <laughs> and now, let's take your calls for Sophie Scott. <laughs> let's open up the lines. Okay, now, that sound... What happens to your brain when you hear that is exactly what Sophie studies as a cognitive neuroscientist.
3: So I study I study human brains, but I'm interested in what we're doing right now. You know, we can't see each other, but we are having, you know, perfectly fluent conversation. Yeah, right. And I'm interested in how that goes on in terms of perception and production, and I'm interested in the verbal stuff that we do and also in the other noises we make with our mouths. And one noise in
1: particular that Sophie focuses on is laughter and why
3: like a cold or even a yawn there's something contagious about it so yawning is very like laughter in this respect you can catch it from somebody and you are much more likely to catch it from somebody you know than someone you don't know
1: okay so to set this up uh, a little bit more you might remember this viral video that went around a couple years back
3: is this when somebody starts to laugh when a woman's reading something on her phone
1: hey right Basically, uh, this was an improv group in Berlin, and they filmed a stunt on the metro train there. One lady is looking at her phone, and she sees something funny, so she shows it to a friend, and (laughs) they start laughing. (laughs) Then somebody else around her starts laughing. It's lovely. This is a packed train. The Germans are not, you know, they're kind of serious. They're like reading their papers.
3: They're not hilarious Finns,
1: slowly but surely even though the rest of the passengers can't see the first woman's phone and don't know what she's laughing at the laughter spreads and spreads and Sophie says even though the initial spark of laughter was staged and planned the spread
3: that was real you can go from very staged laughter, very polite laughter, very social laughter, through to genuinely helpless, involuntary laughter along that same route, because laughter just primes laughter. If you go anywhere in the world where you want people to laugh, you get them laughing, and then you keep them going.
1: In this part,
3: cognitive neuroscientists
1: like Sophie Scott, they understand it pretty well. Laughter, it spreads. But what we understand less is why. Here's Sophie on the TED stage.
3: I'm going to talk to you today about laughter. And in terms of the science of laughter, there isn't very much. But it does turn out that pretty much everything we think we know about laughter is wrong. So it's not at all unusual, for example, to hear people say, humans are the only animals that laugh. Nietzsche thought humans are the only animals that laugh. In fact, you find laughter throughout the mammals. It's been well described and well observed in primates, but you also see it in rats. And wherever you find it, humans, primates, rats, you find it associated with things like tickling. And that's the same for humans. You find it associated with play and all mammals play. And wherever you find it, it's associated with interactions. So Robert Provine, who's done a lot of work on this, has pointed out that you are 30 times more likely to laugh if you are with somebody else than if you're on your own. And where you find most laughter is in social interactions like conversation. So if you ask human beings, when do you laugh, they'll talk about comedy and they'll talk about humor and they'll talk about jokes. If you look at when they laugh, they're laughing with their friends. And when we laugh with people, we're hardly ever actually laughing at jokes. You are laughing to show people that you understand them, that you agree with them, that you're part of the same group as them. You're laughing to show that you like them, that you might even love them. You're doing all that at the same time as talking to them. And in fact, the laughter is doing a lot of that emotional work for you.
1: It's the kind of laughter you experience maybe late at night when you're a little slap-happy with your friends because that kind of laughter, the kind of laughter we heard on that train in Berlin,
3: it's just another way we have of saying... I know you. I like you. yeah, I've got something in common with you. I want to hang out with you. A lot of this sort of mirroring of other people's behaviour, like you get in behavioural contagion, it's always got a positive meaning. And in fact, if you look within conversations, you and I will have started to breathe at the same time. As soon as you started speaking, we didn't decide to do this, we just have to do it actually to have a conversation. We have to coordinate our breath. Hmm. What you'll also find is the more you like the person you're talking to, the more you'll align other things as well. So you'll start to use the same words as them, you'll start to use the same grammatical structures as them. You don't do that if you don't like somebody, to put it perfectly honest. You do it when you like someone. You know, you kind of got that social link. On the show today, exploring those social links, how things
1: spread, trying to understand how emotions, disease, even ideas themselves spread among us and tie us together. But first, back to Sophie Scott and a really interesting part of her research on laughter, which she presented on the TED stage.
3: Now, something I've got very interested in is different kinds of laughter. And we have some neurobiological evidence about how human beings are vocalized that suggests there might be two kinds of laughs that we have. So, it seems possible that the neurobiology for helpless, involuntary laughter might have a different basis to it than some of that more polite social laughter that you encounter, which isn't horrible laughter, but it's, it's somebody's behaviour somebody is doing as part of their communicative act to you, part of their interaction with you. They are sort of choosing to do this. So, I've been looking at this in more detail. Um, and to do this, we've had to make recordings of people laughing, and we've just had to do whatever it takes to make people laugh. And we've got those same people to produce more posed social laughter. So he said, imagine your friend told a joke, and you're laughing because you like your friend, but not, you know, not, not really because the joke's all that. So I'm going to play you a couple of those. I want you to tell me if you think this laughter is real laughter, or if you think it's posed. So is this involuntary laughter or more voluntary laughter? LAUGHTER what does that sound like to you? Posed? Posed. How about this one? <laughs> I'm the best. <laughs> now, that, that was helpless laughter. And in fact, um, to record that, all they had to do was record me watching one of my friends listening to something I knew she wanted to laugh at, and I just start doing this. Now, what you find is that people are good at telling the difference to real and posed laughter. They seem to be different things to us. We took it into the scanner to see how brains respond when you hear laughter. And what it seems to be the case, when you hear somebody laughing involuntarily, you hear sounds you would never hear in any other context. It's very unambiguous, and it seems to be associated with greater auditory processing of these novel sounds. In contrast, when you hear somebody laughing in a posed way what you see are these regions which are occupying brain areas associated with mentalizing thinking about what somebody else is thinking and i think what that means is even if you're having your brain scanned which is completely boring and not very interesting when you hear somebody going ah, ha, 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 you're trying to work out why they're laughing
1: okay so so i get that laughter is always meaningful and, and that something's going on in the brain right But we don't really understand why it's contagious, right? I mean, like, why it spreads.
3: No, no. I mean, we know that it is. We know that it happens. We know that it is contagious. But clearly can't be the whole story. We know it's more complex than that. And we don't really understand, you know, issues around the time course. People always laugh at the end of sentences, for example, and they really coordinate their laughter very tightly to do that. So it's not just contagious, it's actually being really highly orchestrated. Whereas um, the time scale of spontaneous, helpless laughter can actually be quite slow. People can hear something that makes them start to laugh and then a few beats later they start really laughing hard and then they're lost to you for a few minutes. <laughs> It's a tiny little sort of dollop of the old mammal behavior, which does a huge amount of good, helping you make even very transient social relationships go slightly better. <laughs>
1: Sophie Scott, she's a cognitive neuroscientist at University College London. You can see her entire talk at TED.com.
4: Hello, it's Seth.
1: Okay, Seth. Thank you for joining us. First, can you introduce yourself, please?
4: My name is Seth Godin. I'm an author, a blogger, and sometimes an entrepreneur.
1: Some people like call you a like a kind of a, a Yoda of marketing.
4: Oh, well, I hope I'm better looking than Yoda, but <laughs> I'm really interested in people who have something to say, a change they want to make, and can't figure out why they can't make it spread.
1: Seth's written and blogged so much about marketing that if you google the word just the word Seth, he comes up as the first hit. So it's safe to say he kind of knows what he's doing, right? Except that even with all of his expertise, Seth will be the first to tell you that getting an idea to spread is not an exact science. There are tricks you can try, of course, but they won't always work. And as he explained on the TED stage, even the greatest idea of all time, it almost
5: fell apart. I gotta tell you about sliced bread. Now, before sliced bread was invented in the 1910s, I wonder what they said, like the greatest invention since the telegraph or something. But (laughs) the thing about the invention of sliced bread is this, that for the first 15 years after sliced bread was available, no one bought it, no one knew about it. It was a complete and total failure. And the reason is that until wonder came along and figured out how to spread the idea of sliced bread, no one wanted it. That the success of sliced bread is not always about what the patent is like or what the factory is like. It's about can you get your idea to spread or not. And it doesn't matter to me whether you're running a coffee shop or you're an intellectual or you're in business or flying hot air balloons. People who can spread ideas, regardless of what those ideas are, win. But consumers, they got way more choices than they used to and way less time. And in a world where we have too many choices and too little time, the obvious thing to do is just ignore stuff. And my parable here is you're driving down the road, and you see a cow, and you keep driving. Because you've seen cows before. Cows are invisible. Cows are boring. Who's gonna stop and pull over and say, oh, look, a cow? Nobody. But if the cow was purple, you'd notice it, right? The thing that's gonna decide what gets talked about, what gets done, what gets changed, what gets purchased, what gets built, is, is it remarkable? And remarkable is a really cool word, because we think it just means neat. But it also means worth making a remark about. And that is the essence of where idea diffusion is going.
1: Okay, so how do you translate remarkable into an idea that spreads? When we come back, Seth Godin with some secrets that sell blenders, hot sauce, and a billion cups of coffee... I'm Guy Raz and you're listening
6: to the Ted Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com/podcast.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. It's
1: the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today how things spread, how ideas, emotions, behaviors, diseases spread from one person to another. And just a minute ago, we were hearing from Seth Godin. He's kind of like the Yoda of marketing. And he says that whatever you're trying to spread, whether it's an idea or a brand or whatever it is, those things spread faster when the people you know and like talk about them.
4: When you think about Uber and Airbnb and the other companies that are turning things upside down. Uber isn't big because they ran a lot of ads. They're big because someone took out their iPhone and said to their friend, watch this, and pressed a button and a car pulled up.
1: This is exactly how I feel about my Vitamix. I talk about it with friends all the time. You know you know what those are, right?
4: Of course. I had my breakfast from a Vitamix today. They're amazing, aren't
1: they? I talk about it all the time.
4: So the Blender story is an interesting one. A few years ago, uh, a guy took over a company called Blendtec. Hmm which was Vitamix's competitor. So what Blendtec started to do, but will it blend? Was take things that should not be in a blender, let's find out, like an iPhone, and blend it. (laughs) They did a series of videos called Will It Blend? We are going to blend
5: cubic zirconia imitation diamonds. Today we're gonna blend 40 pens. This is a half a chicken, mascara eyeliner, and then
4: my DVD remote control. Let's push the smoothie button. Those commercials are super powerful. Not because he stood up and said, want to see my blender? But he said, if you show your friends this, they will start to appreciate your sense of humor. So by giving people a tool that they can share and benefit from, It's a form of media that isn't controlled by Rupert Murdoch or the guys at Viacom. It is a form of media that is earned every single time it spreads.
1: So what happened to
4: Blendtec? Oh, they sold a lot of blenders. I have one at home as well. And if I ever, you know, need to blend a hockey puck or a bunch of pencils, it's my go-to.
5: What marketers used to do is make average products for average people. That's what mass marketing is. They would ignore the geeks and, God forbid, the laggards. It was all about going for the center. I don't think that's the strategy we want to use anymore. Instead, you have to find a group that really desperately cares about what it is you have to say, talk to them. They have something I call otaku. It's a great Japanese word. It describes the desire of someone who's obsessed to say drive across Tokyo to try a new ramen noodle place because that's what they do. They get obsessed with it. To make a product, to market an idea, to come up with any problem you want to solve that doesn't have a constituency within otaku is almost impossible. There's a hot sauce otaku, but there's no mustard otaku. That's why there's lots and lots and lots of kinds of hot sauces and not so many kinds of mustard. Not because it's hard to make interesting mustard. You can make interesting mustard. But people don't because no one's obsessed with it, and thus no one tells their friends.
1: Is the person or the product with the loudest voice, is the idea that is most
4: amplified, is that,
1: are those the ones that spread?
4: Sometimes. I think it depends on the segment, and I think it depends on the stakes. You have to pay the price to be in the right place at the right time, often enough that people tend to see you as the regular kind. So if I look at Starbucks, Howard Schultz has made many brilliant decisions and one of the things that they did was they invented the third space. It's not work. It's not home. That's one of the engines of its spread. But at the same time he was doing that, he bet the farm to open more and more stores in any given town. And making it ubiquitous made it much easier to say to your friend, I'll meet you at Starbucks. But other people have tried that, right? Like, There must be a graveyard
1: of of, of businesses in which... There was this idea that community would be the center of of it, and that's what would attract people.
4: And those didn't work. Bingo. We're better in the rearview mirror than we are (laughs) at predicting (laughs) because you're never going to be right every time. You can handicap it. You can point to certain elements that make it work. And many of those elements come straight out of epidemiology, right? That the horrible Zika virus or HIV, we can look, at what it means to be patient zero, what it means to need not much contact to spread. And all of those things follow into the way ideas spread.
1: So, so you can do that? You can compare the spread of disease to the, to the spread of ideas?
4: Oh, I'm sure of it. You know, if I look at an auditorium full of high school students and the big man on campus and his girlfriend are busy talking while the lecture is going on, the rest of the room is going to do it. Because they're powerful sneezers. They have influence. They reach out to a whole bunch of people in a way that makes the idea of being disrespectful spread. Or if I take that same auditorium and I make it much bigger and put more space between the seats, it'll be quieter because it's much harder when you're not in physical contact with people to spread a virus from person to person. Right? There are all sorts of patterns that we see in epidemiology that help us understand why something spreads.
1: Seth Godin, he's the author of Purple Cow and many other books on marketing. You can see all of his TED Talks at TED.com. And what Seth's talking about kind of makes sense if you think about it, right? Like that ideas can spread like viruses, except that viruses are things that, of course, we don't want to spread.
6: It is the worst Ebola outbreak in history, and it continues to wreak havoc across West Africa. The
3: matter
7: has reached
6: crisis
3: point. Most of those who get it will die through uncontrollable bleeding.
1: So this was the summer of 2014.
8: Everybody who thinks about global health spent July and August of that year wondering, why is this form of Ebola spreading so fast?
1: This is Bill Gates, who of course does a lot of work on global health.
8: At first, we weren't sure how it was spreading. The relief group Doctors Without Borders
5: says the epidemic is so out of control they can no longer send teams to new outbreak sites.
1: At the time, it seemed like Ebola could become a major pandemic. And there were a lot of questions about whether humans actually had the capacity to contain it.
8: The dynamics once we got into urban areas, should you quarantine, should you not quarantine, the health professionals who are getting sick. The numbers are rising, even health workers not immune. How much Justice. will that capacity stay in place?
3: Africa could see over one million cases by January. Now, Ebola has already killed
1: more And than so everything seemed to fall apart there. You probably remember all of that, the summer of fear, the news coverage that continued well into the fall. But you may not remember how it all stopped.
8: By December, it was clear that there was less
1: geographic spread and you could see some positive news. Even though 10,000 people died from Ebola, it never became millions. And that's because gradually, health workers managed to contain it. And that was a part of it. But... Bill Gates says the other part, it was luck. So this is not like
8: a measles or a flu where a significant percentage of everybody in the
1: population would be infected. To catch Ebola, you literally had to come into contact with the bodily fluids of an infected person. And only then from a really sick infected person. So it's not actually that easy to catch. But next time, Bill Gates says... The next pandemic could be airborne. It could spread faster, and it could be harder to detect, which means we're not ready for the next epidemic. Bill Gates picks up this idea on the TED stage. Let's
8: look at the progression of Ebola. The problem wasn't that there was a system that didn't work well enough. The problem was that we didn't have a system at all. We didn't have a group of epidemiologists ready to go, who would have gone, seen what the disease was, see how far it had spread. Uh, The case reports came in on paper. Uh, It was very delayed before they were put online, and they were extremely inaccurate. We didn't have a medical team ready to go. We were far slower than we should have been getting the thousands of workers into these countries. And a large epidemic would require us to have hundreds of thousands of workers. There was no one there to look at treatment approaches, no one to figure out what tools should be used. The failure to prepare could allow the next epidemic to be dramatically more devastating than Ebola. You can have a virus where people feel well enough while they're infectious that they get on a plane or they go to a market. The source of the virus could be a natural epidemic like Ebola or it could be bioterrorism. And so there are things that would literally make things a 1,000 times worse.
1: Why do you think we're not ready for the next epidemic? I mean, is it a, a lack of ability or is it just a lack of will?
8: We're underinvested in both the risk of a natural epidemic and the risk of a intentionally caused uh, bioterrorism epidemic. And yet the United States government actually spends more on these issues than... All other governments put together. Even so, every report that comes out after SARS and H1M1, the reports call on governments to do more. But things that have a low probability of happening, but a very high cost, it's always very tricky who's supposed to invest to get ready for those things. But in fact, we can build a really good response system. We have the benefits of all the science and technology that we talk about here. We've got cell phones to get information from the public and get information out to them. We have satellite maps where we can see where people are and where they're moving. We have advances in biology that should dramatically change the turnaround time to look at a pathogen and be able to make drugs and vaccines. So we can have tools, but those tools need to be put into an overall global health system. What are the key pieces? is we need strong health systems in poor countries. Uh, That's where uh, mothers can give birth safely, kids can get all their vaccines, but also where we'll see the outbreak very early on. We need a Medical Reserve Corps, lots of people who've got the training and background who are ready to go with the expertise. And then we need to pair those medical people with the military taking advantage of the military's ability to move fast and secure areas. We need to do simulations, germ games, not war games, so that we see where the holes are. Finally, we need lots of advanced R&D in areas of vaccines and diagnostics. There are some big breakthroughs that could work very, very quickly.
1: How long do we have before we can put this, these tools in, into place, like, you know, have a system to actually stop an epidemic before it spreads out of control?
8: Well, eventually we'll have some type of extreme surveillance where you're taking biological samples from people who are traveling around and doing full sequencing of saliva, blood, feces, and try and understand what's out there and catch it at a very early stage. So eventually having a super effective digital immune system for the world hopefully that would catch something at a very early stage. Also, our technology to very quickly make new vaccines or other protective constructs, over the next 10 years, that stuff is getting a lot better. So we should hope that we take it more seriously. We should hope that nothing bad happens in the next 10 years. And then we will be better equipped to deal with a natural epidemic.
1: Bill Gates. He heads the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. You can see his talk on Ebola as well as others he's given at TED.com. Our show today, ideas
6: about how things spread. So we use the word spread, and we think we understand what we're saying. But actually, germs spread differently than emotions, which spread differently than money, which spread differently than behavior. So different things spread in different ways. This is Nicholas Christakis. I'm a physician and a social scientist at Yale University, where I direct the Human Nature Lab, and I'm also the co-director of the Yale Institute for Network Science.
1: And to understand Nicholas's interest, or his obsession really, with the question of how things spread, well, first, we need to go back about 300 years. This was in 1744, something like that. And around that time, some French mathematicians decided to examine death among monks and nuns. And the conventional wisdom at the time was that living in holy purity, no sex, no marriage,
6: it should have meant that monks and nuns live longer. And they began to find that actually the monks uh, and the nuns did not live longer. It was very perplexing to them because it wasn't in keeping with their sort of religious ideas about what should be going on. So theory quashed. But then, about 100 years later... About
1: 1858, I think it was... A British statistician named William Farr... I think you could think of him as the father of of demography, actually. He'd been wondering about that study from 100 years before, so he did one of his own. But instead of studying monks and nuns who lived in relative isolation, he studied married couples, people
6: who had each other. And he found that actually uh, married people uh, lived longer. But there was another surprise in the study, too. He also found that people uh, who were widowed uh, lost life. They lived less long. This phenomenon became known as the widowhood effect. And beginning in the 1960s, uh, some physicians and some demographers and other social scientists continued to study this topic in a famous paper that was published called Dying of a Broken Heart. And it basically says,
1: if you're a man and your wife dies... Your risk of death in the
6: following year doubles. And when a woman's uh, husband dies, her risk of death goes up by approximately 20 percent and then it sort of gradually rises and then gradually returns uh, to baseline. Wait, wait, just just stop for a moment. I
1: mean, yeah, this is crazy, right? Like a spouse dies, like a, a wife or a husband dies and then mm-hmm. the possibility of death spreads to the uh, surviving spouse.
6: Yes, that's right. That's exactly what happens. And, and the reason is that because people are connected, their health is connected. There's something very deep and fundamental about human connection. I mean, we fare better and worse because we're connected to others. So years ago, Nicholas was studying this effect, the widowhood effect. And I just suddenly had this very simple uh, realization that, in fact, we could see the widowhood effect as a simple case of a much broader phenomenon, uh, as a simple case of social network effects more generally. For Nicholas, this was the moment when his career became
1: less about death, about husbands and wives, and more about the profound but hidden ways we are all connected and how those connections fuel the spread of, well, everything. Here's Nicholas on the TED stage.
6: And I started to see the world in a whole new way. And then I realized that, in fact, these connections were vast and that we were all embedded in this broad set of connections with each other. This thing, this this network, has has a memory. It moves, things flow within it. It has a kind of consistency. People can die, but it it doesn't die. And it has a kind of resilience that allows it to persist across time. And I became obsessed with this. I became obsessed with how it might be that we're embedded in these social networks and how they affect our lives. So social networks are these intricate things of beauty. And they are so elaborate and so complex and so ubiquitous, in fact, that one has to ask what purpose they serve. I think understanding social networks and how they form and operate can help us understand not just health and emotions, but all kinds of other phenomena like crime and warfare and economic phenomena like bank runs and market crashes and the adoption of innovation.
1: When we come back, Nicholas Christakis dives into his research on social networks and explains how everything spreads among everyone. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
6: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. A new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com NPR.
2: With a voice as calm and soothing as Rain Wilson's, it was inevitable he either worked for NPR or invented a talking pillow. He went with the pillow. Sleep with Rain, powered by AT&T Business, featuring his voice, designed to help people sleep. Kind of brilliant. Even smarter? Launching a new business with AT&T Business's security, reliability, and expertise. Make your next-level ideas a reality with the only Next Level Network. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com.
1: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about how things spread. And before the break, we were hearing from social scientist Nicholas Christakis. And early in his career, he wanted to understand how behavior and even the choices we make spread through
6: social networks. And eventually we became interested in the structure of human social networks. Like, why do we have this structure at all? Why do humans make networks with these ornate reproducible patterns. So how does it work? Like, give me an example. And so if you can imagine, you could think about this in terms of how you arrange uh, workplaces. For example, you might employ a thousand engineers, and you might find that if we organize the engineers in certain ways, they're inventive and cooperative. Or we take the same engineers and organize them in a different way, you know, who's talking to whom, for example, and we find that those engineers are uninventive and uncooperative. Same human beings Different topology, different architecture of ties completely changes the kind of uh, group properties that these individuals evince. And many experiments that we've done have shown this. You take a group of people and you arrange them one way and they're healthy and innovative and cooperative and kind. Or you take the same people and you arrange them a different way and they're unhealthy and uncooperative and unkind. And, And it's that insight about how the whole comes to be greater than the sum of its parts. That is, in my judgment, one of the most crucial insights arising from the study of human social networks. Now, how does this help us figure out some of the problems that are affecting us these days? Well, the argument I'd like to make is that networks have value. They are a kind of social capital. Our experience of the world depends on the actual structure of the networks in which we're residing, and on all the kinds of things that ripple and flow through the network. The reason, I think, that this is the case is that human beings assemble themselves and form a kind of superorganism. Superorganisms have properties that cannot be understood just by studying the individuals. And so I, I came to see these kinds of social networks as living things that we could put under a kind of microscope and study and analyze and understand. And we used a variety of techniques to do this, and we started exploring all kinds of other phenomena. So we looked at smoking and drinking behavior and voting behavior and divorce, which can spread, and altruism. So
1: we could get to a place where you know, we could be so good at mapping social networks and behaviors that we could actually predict how, you know, how they're going to react, how
6: things spread even before it happens. Oh, yeah. Not only can we do that. But even more, we can put information into the network. My colleague James Fowler published a paper where he – working with Facebook where he randomly assigned 61 million people, he and his colleagues, to a voter intervention showing that we could increase civic engagement in our country by exploiting the fact that people are more likely to vote when their friends vote. And in a study that we just published a couple of months ago, working in Honduras, uh, my laboratory showed that actually we could strategically target a clean water and vitamin interventions and create artificial tipping points in villages in Honduras uh, by taking advantage of an understanding of network structure so that we picked structurally influential people in these villages, persuaded them to change their behavior, and as a result, the behavior change spread rapidly through the population.
1: Hmm. I mean, there's so many things that you, that you you could spread just by identifying the right the right people and the right entry points.
6: Yes, that's exactly right. Now, I should say, this technology, like any technology, is a dual-use technology. You can use this thing not only to spread desirable properties, but undesirable properties. So you can foster the spread of 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 germs and bioterror attacks, or you can foster the spread of fascism, or you can you can make groups not more cooperative, but less cooperative. So
1: am I like the only one who thinks this is kind of scary? Like you – people like you have a lot of power. Like you are kind of an evil genius, Nicholas.
6: Yes, yes, yes. It, that's It's a concern. But like it's like guns or nuclear weapons or, or drugs which are poisons. Uh, you know, it's a very scary thing to contemplate. Yeah. So I was giving a talk uh, about this work about how our ideas, uh, you know, could be used to make the world better – and I was doing this in a foreign, in an unnamed foreign country. And um, afterwards, all these official-looking people came up to talk to me. And um, I became aware at some point that they were very interested in what I was doing, but, you know, for the wrong reasons. Yes, yeah, so all of this is a dual-use technology. But I would beg to suggest that this is not specific to network science. So this is a problem in all sciences. Um, but as a network scientist, we need to be mindful of this as well. I think we form social networks because the benefits of a connected life outweigh the costs. If I was always violent towards you, or gave you misinformation, or made you sad, or infected you with deadly germs, you would cut the ties to me and the network would disintegrate. So the spread of good and valuable things is required to sustain and nourish social networks. Similarly, social networks are required for the spread of good and valuable things, like love and kindness and happiness and altruism and ideas. I think, in fact, that if we realized how valuable social networks are, we'd spend a lot more time nourishing them and sustaining them. Because I think social networks are fundamentally related to goodness.
1: The more you understand about how things
6: spread, are you optimistic about about all this stuff? God, yes. Yes. I mean, I, I wouldn't be engaged in this work and have devoted so much time to it if I wasn't moved, frankly, by the prospect of using this technology to make the world better. Many of the problems that beset human beings, at their root, have behavioral origins. And so I think inventing technologies that allow us to change behavior at scale in populations for the better is crucial. And I really believe that these types of technologies and ideas offer tremendous hope for improving the human condition.
1: Nicholas Christakis teaches at Yale University. You can see both of his talks at TED.com. Now, perhaps the most successful story of something spreading all over the world
7: is us, humans. If aliens from outer space arrived at planet Earth a 100,000 years ago, um, I don't think they would have had a very good reason to place their bets on humans and not on the elephants or dolphins or whales or whatever. This is Yuval Harari. He's written about why Homo sapiens, us...
1: Became the dominant species on the planet, not any other animal, not even any other species of early man like Neanderthals.
7: In terms of actual accomplishments, there was nothing in the human record a hundred thousand years ago that indicated one of these apes is going to take over the planet. Huh.
1: Okay, so how is it? I mean, how is it that, like, who was the first Homo sapien who was like,
7: okay, guys, let's, you know, let's do this thing. Let's spread out around the world. This is the big question of history. We see the the big change about 70,000 years ago, 70, 60, 50,000 years ago, you start seeing Homo sapiens doing extremely impressive things. The most impressive thing is that they suddenly spread out of East Africa, and within a couple of thousand years they colonize uh, most of the middle east, europe and asia and then again very quickly they spread to places where no human being has ever reached before to australia and later to america and over time we start seeing the first evidence for religion out for political units that are larger than a single hunter-gatherer band. So how did we go from this unremarkable species to suddenly
1: spreading all over the world and then ruling it? Yuval explains it in his TED
7: Talk. The real difference between humans and all other animals is not on the individual level, it's on the collective level. Humans control the planet because they are the only animals that can cooperate both flexibly and in very large numbers. Now, there are other animals, like the social insects, the bees, the ants, that can cooperate in large numbers, but they don't do so flexibly. Their cooperation is very rigid. There is basically just one way in which a beehive can function, And if there is a new opportunity or a new danger, the bees cannot reinvent their social system overnight. They cannot, for example, execute the queen and establish a republic of bees, or a communist (laughs) dictatorship of worker bees. Other animals, like the social mammals, the wolves, the elephants, the dolphins, the chimpanzees, they can cooperate much more flexibly, but they do so only in small numbers. Because cooperation among chimpanzees is based on intimate knowledge, one of the other. The only animal that can combine the two abilities together and cooperate both flexibly and still do so in very large numbers is us, Homo sapiens.
1: Okay, so if being able to work flexibly in, in large numbers is our main advantage, what is it that, that allowed us to do that?
7: Uh, The best solution that I can offer is our imagination and the ability not only to imagine things to yourself, but to share your fictions, to invent and spread fictional stories. This is why we can cooperate in our billions, whereas chimpanzees cannot, and why we reach the moon and split the atom and decipher DNA, and they just play with sticks and bananas. animals use their communication system only to describe reality. A chimpanzee may say, look, there is a banana tree over there, let's go and get bananas. Humans, in contrast, use their language not merely to describe reality, but also to create new realities, fictional realities. A human can say, look, there is a God above the clouds, and if you all believe these stories that I've invented, then you will follow the same norms and laws and values, and you can cooperate. This is something only humans can do. You can never convince a chimpanzee to give you a banana by promising him that after you die, you'll go to chimpanzee heaven, (laughs) and you'll receive lots and lots of bananas for your good deeds, so now give me this banana. Only humans believe such stories
1: and so I mean, what you're saying is that these these stories are what allowed us to to organize and and then spread out.
7: Yes, because if you think about any religion, any economic system, any political system, at the basis you will find some fictional story about god, about money, about human rights, about a nation. All these things are fictional stories. They are not a biological reality, but it's a very powerful and convincing and and, uh, uh, benign fiction that helps us organize our political and legal systems in the modern world take for example the legal field most legal systems today in the world are based on a belief in human rights but what are human rights take a human being cut him open Look inside, you will find the heart, the kidneys, neurons, hormones, DNA, but you won't find any rights. The only place you find rights is in the stories that we have invented and spread around over the last few centuries. They may be very positive stories, very good stories, but they are still just fictional stories that we've invented. The same is true of the economic field. I can take this worthless piece of paper, go to the supermarket, give it to a complete stranger whom I've never met before, and get, in exchange, real bananas, which I can actually eat. Money, in fact, is the most successful story ever invented and told by humans, because it is the only story everybody believes. If you think
1: about it right, like in terms of, of human expansion, in terms of the, the way we spread out around the world, I guess you could you could say that like our ability to procreate isn't the most significant part of it. It's, it's our ability to imagine, w- which is most responsible for why we spread out.
7: Uh, definitely. Uh, you can have more babies, more people. But unless you can make all these people cooperate with one another, it will be very difficult to take over the planet or even to feed all these millions. Before the agricultural revolution, 10,000 years ago, the total number of humans on the planet was perhaps five or six million. This is how much you can support by hunting and gathering. Today, we are approaching eight billion. And to feed all these billions of people, you need extremely sophisticated networks of cooperation economic cooperation, trades, industry, banking, transportation, communication, and so forth. Now, in order to have trade, you need some trust. And you can also look at the world and see how, in, in some cases, modern beliefs, like the belief in capitalism and democracy and human rights, spread far more effectively uh, when it's done in through trade, and through economic relations, than when it's done at the point of a bayonet. We humans control the world because we live in a dual reality. And what is amazing, that as history unfolded, this fictional reality became more and more powerful, so that today, the most powerful forces in the world are these fictional entities. Today... The very survival of rivers and trees and lions and elephants depends on the decisions and wishes of fictional entities like the United States, like Google, like the World Bank, entities that exist only in our own imagination. Thank you.
1: Yuval well, Harari he's a professor at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. His book is called Sapiens: A Brief History of Humankind. You can see his entire talk at ted.com.
2: If you woke up this morning on the right side of the bed, that's a good feeling. Spread it around if you can't keep from laughing at something someone see. That's a good saying. Spread it around. Hey, thanks for
1: listening to our show, How Things Spread This Week. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Krant, Sanaz Meshkinpoor, and Casey Herman. With help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Maria Paz Gutierrez. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, you can write us at TEDRadioHour at npr.org. And you can follow us on Twitter. It's at TED Radio Hour. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
2: I said, Tell them about.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Stripe. Tap to pay on iPhone, and Stripe can help you grow your business's revenue and reach through accepting more in-person, contactless payments right from an iPhone. To learn how,
2: visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer?
7: and NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as Black experiences, you'll hear. It means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcast.